Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with Dan Doktoroff, the founder and CEO of urban innovation company, Sidewalk Labs. We discuss how technology helps us reimagine our city streets and make predictions for how localities will monetize those streets in the future. Dan also shares his thoughts on how the reconceptualization of physical space can make cities more affordable and how Sidewalk Labs approaches change in cities through technology and innovation. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Where are you coming in from today? Uh, I'm in New York. Um, I've been in New York probably since Labor Day, the vast majority of the time. I'll tell you, it feels like a pretty different place. I imagine. I imagine. I was back briefly and I got a little bit of a flavor for it. But since we were obviously talking about it, you know, right before uh, recording, I guess, you know, one of the thing that one of the things that fascinates me is this this demographic and socioeconomic reshuffling that appears to be afoot between cities within the U.S., but the kind of a a scattering of knowledge workers and wealth and cosmopolitanism from the cities that have historically kind of been the magnets to call it the field. How do you think about that? And how do you think New York has an opportunity to react to that? So I, I, I think it's to some extent a little early to tell, although I think for cities like New York, the early evidence is not positive. And, you know, you can lump in, you know, other kind of, as I think Richard Florida called them superstar cities like San Francisco. I just, I just interviewed Richard actually on this exact same question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're very good friends. Um, but uh, Boston, Washington, um, Chicago to some extent, LA to some extent. Um, and so, you know, your natural instinct is what's, what's happening is, you know, what I call sort of the vicious cycle of the declining city, um, which is, you know, at the end of the day, city's job is to grow because when you grow, um, you uh, generate tax revenue, that tax revenue, particularly the marginal kind of revenue you generate over your largely fixed costs, um, can be redeployed and invested into improving quality of life as quality of life improves. Um, more people come and that cycle perpetuates itself. We've been in more or less a virtuous cycle um, for the last almost 30 years, since the early 90s. A virtuous uh, cycle for that growth of cities, meaning we... Yeah, but, but what, we, what we started to see even before COVID was the growth rates were starting to slow down. They were starting to slow down in part because of affordability challenges and other things. New York, for example, lost population for the first time since like the early 80s um, over the last two years. When that happens, when you lose population, you lose tax revenue, um, you can't afford to invest in improving quality of life. Quality of life declines, more people lose, leave, 
and that perpetuates itself. That's the vicious cycle. I had felt we were kind of entering into that kind of vicious cycle before COVID. Um, it's almost as if like we were in the first inning of it before COVID. Um, and um, I think COVID shoves it into like the fifth inning or the sixth inning or something. And the risks to these cities are enormous. And you think about it, you think about sort of the value proposition for sort of every aspect for why someone would want to be here, you know, the office worker, right? And the companies, you know, we've all learned we don't need to be in the same place the way we thought we did a year ago. Um, you know, residential, the value proposition of a city, at least during COVID, you know, typically you trade it off like small space, high rent for the energy of the place, the networking, the fun, et cetera. Those, that calculation is being reshuffled. And then you think about tourism, which, you know, maybe this is a temporary um, COVID phenomenon, uh, but parts of it won't be. Like business travel, I think, is going to be forever affected and therefore you know, some of the other kind of aspects of the city are going to be affected. And so, you know, the risk is, is that we get shoved into a vicious cycle. And, you know, people say, ah, nah, won't, would, won't happen. Well, we forget that it's happened before. You know, um, in the 1970s, New York lost 10% of its population in one decade. Um, and, you know, we lost. Can I ask you just because I'm so interested in this? Yeah. I actually, this is what I wrote my senior thesis on yeah, right. at Princeton was um, the, the, the bailout. And can you walk people through what happened then, right? Well, what, what was the driver then and what's different now? So it is a different time. But what happened was, was that there's a lot of hypotheses about this. Fundamentally, um, the city spent its way in the late 60s, mid 60s and late 60s, spent its way into a financial crisis, right? And then as a result, it had to start cutting expenses. When it started cutting expenses, quality of life started to decline. Crime went up, the subways got dirtier, parks were not as well maintained. The school system began to deteriorate. Right? When that happened, people left. So in the 1970s, 10%, 800,000 people in one decade left this city. In 1971, 13 Fortune 500 companies left the city. And so it continued to spiral until New York actually was on the verge of bankruptcy. And it was only sort of a bailout um, in which business participated, labor participated, that it was able to avoid bankruptcy and started a very long climb back up. It took 25 years to get those 800,000 people back. So you should never ever assume that growth, which is good, right? As long as it's managed well, um, is a foregone conclusion and right now, we're going in the other direction. Who will be the beneficiaries of that if New York, in fact, does and other cities like it do shrink? You know, some of it will be the suburbs, although I think the activity you're seeing in the suburbs right now is overstated. You know, basically, 
you know, you think about people are moving out of the city all the time. Um, I think what COVID has done is accelerated that by a few years. So the person who was going to move out because they had one kid and was waiting till they have two, you know, and would have moved out in two or three years, they're now looking at the suburbs. Um, so the suburbs will benefit. And, and by the way, I should point out in the suburbs, there's not a lot of supply of new housing. So even small increases in demand move the market a lot. The other parts that places that will probably benefit to some extent are you know, places that can handle the capacity, middle or sort of, you know, middle tier cities that can handle the capacity, but they have to handle the capacity too. You know, very quickly, you know, a place like, uh, you know, I don't know it that well, but Nashville, you know, if traffic gets to be too great because they can't handle it and they don't have a mass transit system and there's no, then they're going to cut off their own growth. So I think it'll be dispersed. That said, I'm not totally negative on a place like New York, but New York is going to have to act fast. And my own view of this, and this is why we created Sidewalk Labs, is that it's innovation that can reignite that virtuous cycle that we've got to really rethink our cities. And it's not like we haven't done that before. And that's, but, what, I, that's what I wanted to ask you about is, because like, I'm, I'm a product of New York City. I was, I was born and raised in right. New York City in the 80s. And so in some ways, I grew up in the kind of resurgence of right. New York. And I guess what happened then, right? And you know, the, everything from Times Square and, and kind of everything that led to New York's rebirth. I guess what needs to happen now, or what what do you think prescriptively should happen now to reposition a city like New York, given we are with tech and innovation and the new economy? Right. So I, well, the first thing is, I think there's a lot of technology that can play a role in this, and cities have to be bold enough to try it. So let, let me give you one example. Um, which is um, mobility. So, you know, mobility today is an equity issue, right? People who don't live close to subways or live further away from Manhattan are by definition sort of disadvantaged because they have to spend so much time commuting. At the same time, we've got a huge problem with our mass transit system. It's facing a financial crisis. People have begun to recognize that with less traffic on the streets, which may be a temporary phenomenon because there's less activity and particularly the commercial districts, that they actually can reclaim the streets for, you know, other sorts of activities. Everybody's loving like the dining on the street stuff, at least for the six or seven months a year that you can do that. So the question is, how can you actually raise money from the use of the streets in a creative way? How can you, by doing that, reduce demand for cars and return streets for people rather than cars? And how can you do that with less demand on the streets? Think about mass transit in a very different way. Okay? Three goals, right? Raise money from the streets, use street space more effectively for people, and move people faster. And what's funny, by the way, is like in, in some ways that th those mandates, those objectives of 
how do you recreate the urban streetscape? How do you make cities more walkable? How do you reintroduce that urban vibrancy? I mean, this was a debate that was had in the, in the 60s as well. This was kind of the post-Robert Moses era, you oh. know, life and death of American cities, Jane Jacobs. It, this is a tried and true um, debate. And it's just well, modern. What's true now is we've got the technology to right. be able to actually do it more effectively. So we can charge for the streets, like congestion pricing on steroids. Right. You know, we can do that with different types of sensors that are cheap. You know, we have a company that we're, um, we're, we're launching where we can produce a privacy sensitive, low power um, sensor for, you know, 50 bucks that sticks on the, on, we can produce it for a lot less, sell it for 50 bucks, it sticks on the street. Um, and so we can, we can actually track who is on the streets and when and charge for it in a very different way. We have another company that is working with cities to create virtual loading zones, for example, that cities would actually charge for. So, you know, the, the ability to raise revenue from streets is great. Now, when you raise the revenue and you increase the price of driving, more less fewer people drive that gives you the capacity um, to actually rethink the streets themselves but you also need to deal with that third thing which is getting people where they want to go faster but we've got all sorts of new approaches to improving mass transit not by building new subways or light rail or whatever but by you know as autonomous vehicles become more um, common, uh, or they work better. You know, we got, we can create laneways that move people dramatically faster. We actually created a company through one of the companies we created called Cavenue, which is working with the state of Michigan to actually create these dedicated laneways that will be embedded with the technology to make next generation mobility actually more possible. You know, Via is a good example of a company that has very sophisticated algorithms for, in effect, creating informal mass transit systems, right? But they need the space on the roads to get people where they want to go faster. So all these things are interrelated. All of them, there is the technology today to create the infrastructure to make it actually possible. And that, I think, is just one area where if you can make those streets more vibrant, more fun, more exciting, you continue to push that value equation for the city in the city's favor. And as you think about all of these new technology applications and services, I mean, it, to some extent, they all have a similar theme. And you can almost conceptualize Uber and Lyft as being kind of the canaries in the coal mine for this, which is the privatization or the quasi-privatization or the applicationization of what were previously public services, right? And Via is a good example. Yes and no. I, I think what uh, Via is maybe the one in the middle in yeah. a way. You know, I think Uber and Lyft, it is privatization of services. I'm not sure they have made the city on balance better, in part because they have produced massive traffic issues. Um, it's mixed. I don't want to be critical of them. Um, but um, I think in many cases, what we've got to do is recognize that the infrastructure 
that is going to have to make some of these possible is going to require the public and private sector to work together. So this is going to require the public sector to be more open to innovation than historically it has been in the past. It is also going to require the private sector to be more sensitive to the concerns of the public sector than they have been. We, We have found sort of looking at kind of how to integrate technology into the physical environment. The common failure is what we call the urbanist technologist divide. So urbanists are the people who build cities, plan cities, write about cities, run cities. The technologists are people who obviously develop the technology that they hope to bring into the physical environment. Those two kinds of people really don't speak to each other in the same language. They also have different risk tolerances. They have um, different kind of um, transparency approaches, and they have to learn to speak to each other. When we created Sidewalk Labs, one of the things that we were very consciously trying to do was bring technologists and urbanists together and create a common culture and a common language. That itself has been hard, even within a company. I think we've made significant progress. It's not until we actually begin to bridge that gulf that you'll start to see um, that happening more. Hopefully, the fact that we're in a crisis in our urban environments will open everybody up in a new and different way. But by the way, the same thing that I talked about with respect to mobility applies to buildings, how you think differently about buildings and space. We now have the technology, for example, one of the things that uh, you know, we're working on at Sidewalk is factory automated mass timber buildings, um, which we think can meaningfully lower the cost of building buildings the time required, to be, and by the way, are dramatically more sustainable than traditional buildings. Um, and you know, it requires code changes. So we're working with jurisdictions, for example, on code changes. We thought differently about space. You know, if you want cities to be more affordable, uh, which is a key part of managing them more effectively, can you think differently about space? Well. You know, the way we build apartments and the way we lay them out is the same as it's been essentially for like 100 years. Right. Uh, But we have new opportunities. We invested in a company with Ikea called Ori, which makes robotic furniture, which can make a 500 square foot apartment feel like 650 square feet. So there's real opportunities and mobility and public space, how we think about public space way we build buildings in terms of the way environmental characteristics of cities. We've got the, the ingenuity and courage to actually do it. What's interesting is, as I'm hearing you talk is that, you know, how cities react to, as you were calling them, the, the technologists, how urbanists react to technologists. And if they mix like oil and water, it just, you know, you, you don't have the opportunities for, you know, private and public collaboration. And to some extent, that feels similar to what corporations do, what large real estate corporations have been doing, which is the largest real estate companies, and Fifth Wall has been, I guess, a beneficiary of this, have now embraced technology. They need to embrace the disruption of their own business. Do you think that, I just have two questions. One is, do you think that 
cities are becoming, by and large, in North America, more receptive to programs and ideas and interchanges like what Sidewalk Labs represents in New York and Toronto and, and, and other cities. Um, and do you think that will affect a, a kind of further reshuffling in which cities embrace that change yeah. and therefore become the vibrant cities of the future? Meaning like- I, I, I think that's a great question. I think it's a mix. I think, um, I do believe this, and I think this is really important that the cities that embrace innovation are really gonna be the cities that are most successful in the future. Um, and those that don't over time will languish. I, I think there's no doubt in my mind about that. Um, and you know, I think cities are more open to it now than they would have been a year ago because of COVID. You know, look, every, every city is facing budgetary problems. Every state is facing budgetary issues. You know, maybe um, if Biden wins, they'll get some temporary relief from that. But the systemic financial issues in cities in particular are, and states are really significant. And I really think it's going to be new ways of doing things that are going to help kind of address that. You can't just like raise taxes, right? right. People are leaving places because of tax um, and, and because because of this new mobile class, like I was talking. Right. Yeah, you, you got less holding you in, and you got you know. So, um, so I, I think innovation um, is really the key to this, and that's part of why we created Sidewalk Labs. Look, we're still an ex experiment in the making, but you know, I think what we really are is an integrated urban innovation company that engages both in place and uses that engagement in place and the kind of a, trying to achieve really ambitious goals to make places better to develop insights for products that ultimately can help make places better and you know we're, we're kind of unique in that way um but you know we're still pretty early. Totally. And I think the way cities, what innovation means to cities is something different today. Like, you know, it's not about like people forget that the, the street lamp was an innovation. Like the street lamp yeah, cities. It was like the, the biggest innovation. It changed safety. It changed streetscapes. It changed everything. Right. When the street I, I like to, uh, and I, I got to go in a minute, but, I like to look at a picture of Market Street in San Francisco in 1870, in 1940, and 2002. If you look at it between 1940 and 2000, not 2020 rather, 2020, it really didn't change a whole lot, right? You know, um, if you look at it between 1870 and 1940, roughly the same period, it didn't look at all like it did in part because in the meantime, the electric grid was fully deployed and the automobile was fully deployed. And you know, with the electric grid, we could have elevators and so cities grew taller, they grew 24 hours with cars. Obviously we had to think about all sorts of different systems and the way we use space in, in urban environments. We haven't had that kind of technological revolution in our cities since basically before World War II. 
And now is the moment when it's actually possible. But as I said, cities are going to have to have enough courage to try and innovators are going to have to have the patience to get stuff done. Urgency and patience going to be required on both sides. Well, Dan, it's always just so interesting to get your perspective on this. And I think what you're, what, you know, what Sidewalk Lab's ambition to do is so bold and so, so innovative. Um, and it's funny, I, you know, when we first met, uh, when we were talking to you, your name, uh, I'd known your name since I was writing my, my senior thesis, as I said, at Princeton, because I, was, I wrote in part on the West Side Stadium and the Olympic proposal and how there was this opportunity to redevelop what is now obviously Hudson Yards. And I think that being on the pioneering edge of that, of where public and private can come together, of where technologists can converge with urbanists, is really the future of what our cities look like. And in this moment in time, where, as you said, we hit the fast forward button on the future, basically in 2020, what an exciting time to re-envision what the city can be. Um, so anyway, just obviously it's, it's so interesting to always get your perspectives on this. Well, great, great to talk to you as always. And uh, we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks, Dan. Right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.